Hello and welcome to the Random Walks podcast. Today I have Dr. Bharat Ram Sundar, who is the creator of the Deep Camp project. Bharat received his BA and BS from the University of California at Berkeley, majoring in electrical engineering and computer science, as well as mathematics, where he was also the class valedictorian. He went on to pursue a PhD in computer science at Stanford, funded by the very selective Hertz Fellowship, and where he was advised by Professor Vijay Pandey. and he studied the application of deep learning to problems in drug discovery at stanford bharat created the deep camp project and after his phd he co-founded comfortable a startup that built better tools for collaborative data set management and bharat is currently working on actively growing the deep camp community bharat is also the lead author of tensorflow for deep learning from linear regression to reinforcement learning a developer's introduction to modern machine learning with o'reilly media and the lead author of deep learning for the life sciences welcome bharat oh, well glad to be on uh, the podcast i thank you for inviting me so bharat you have had a very very interesting journey through science you have been sort of at the frontiers at the top institutions and you have done something that has been sort of straddling academia industry and conventional university research and all you have been doing a lot of interesting things so how was your interest in science fostered early on uh, great question um so i think i first became seriously interested in science about in high school um I, I read a Wikipedia article of quantum computing, um, and I was very just kind of like taken in by the idea about like ways you could use you know quantum states of matter to compute. So I ended up doing a kind of self-directed summer research project on uh, running simulations of quantum computers. That was my first introduction to the field. Um, after that, I kind of uh, started uh, learning a lot more about artificial intelligence. So I um, read through kind of the Russell and Norvig textbook, uh, which is still one of the standard textbooks in the field. Um, and then I went to Berkeley, where I was uh, uh, lucky enough to be able to actually chat with Professor Russell, who was one of the authors of uh, the textbook. So I got the chance to work in his research group uh, part of my time while I was at Berkeley. Um, when I finished up kind of my undergraduate degree, I worked for a year as an engineer uh, at a um, We used to make these. Uh, the company was called Fusion.io. We made these non-volatile memory devices. Uh, basically, this served as like a fast caching layer. So the biggest customer is Facebook. So if you like went to someone's like wall that you hadn't seen in a while, it would pull. Uh, it would call on these devices in their data centers to be able to pull up that information more quickly than you could otherwise. So at the time there, I learned about you know. Um, Designing system software at scale and uh, doing kind of system software research uh, during my time uh, in that group. Uh, after that, I uh, went to uh, do my PhD at Stanford. Um, got really interested at the time. Deep learning had just uh, this is about 2012 uh, when I started. So deep learning had just become started to become very very popular, and there was a lot of buzz in the air about its capabilities. So that basically pulled me in and. Throughout the PhD, I spent a lot of time uh, researching deep learning. I was personally less drawn to things like computer vision or uh, natural language processing. Um, it felt like I wanted to work on something a bit more scientific. So I found uh, kind of naturally where I ended up was working on deep learning applied to molecules. Um, so the, that that's been 
kind of the uh, primary focus of a lot of the work I've done since then. Uh, and uh, yeah, so I, I'm happy to go into kind of more of any more of that, but I figure I'll just pause there uh, uh, in case there's anyone in particular you wanted me to uh, talk more about. No, absolutely. That was a really terrific overview of how exactly your journey in science was posted early on and then how exactly it took off and having had a chance to sort of work with each other sort of inspirations and role models is something really fascinating. And the fact that you had a chance to do it with Professor Russell at Berkeley was really interesting. And so as you talked about, you briefly sort of dabbled in this sort of space for a while, and then you sort of came back and you sort of hit on doing a PhD. So was it a, a thing like you saw that maybe a PhD will sort of hold you in a better steed and sort of refine your perspective even better? So and eventually you also came back to the startup space after your PhD. So in a way, do you feel that your PhD sort of really helped you both grow as a person, obviously as a scientist you did, but as a person and as could you sort of apply sort of cross-apply the skills that you earned or learned over the days in your PhD days to the other yeah. things you have been doing? No, for sure. It's a great question. Um, so the company I mentioned joining after the, um, after my undergrad, it was like a small company, like about like, it was like 800, uh, maybe a thousand people or something like that. So like definitely more established. Um, the Startup, of course, is, is very, was very different. Uh, it was something I did after the PhD. I ended up co-founding a startup. Uh, the, you know, that was from the you know, getting it all uh, going from the ground up and trying to build it out into an actual business. The, what I'll say is that I think that there's less overlap than people realize between doing a PhD and doing a startup. Uh, they often, like there are some common skills about being self-directed and the like, but I think they actually draw on kind of different skill sets. So there can actually be a pretty sharp uh, learning curve. Um, I think a lot of people who uh, do PhDs actually struggle uh, learning the skills of like, you know, uh, business uh, and kind of like entrepreneurship. Um, vice versa, people who've done a startup very early uh, on often, I think, struggle to do good research. It's a requires a different type of thinking and mentality that they're not used to. Like startups are all about going fast and research at times can be about going fast, but it's often about you know, going deep, which can take time. Um, so I think there's actually, uh, I think there are almost, there are separate skills. There's some, there's some connection, but I think there's, uh, uh, yeah. So I think there's enough different there that it's like doing one won't necessarily help you do well at the other. Absolutely. That was a really fascinating insight. And as you talked about, you sort of, you went to Stanford to do your PhD of sorts and you went to Berkeley for your undergrad and very, I believe, for the startup that you dabbled in and all. So was Stanford a natural extension or you applied to a lot of sort of other schools also and Stanford sort of best fit in with the interests that you had and you had some sort of yeah. ascertain the advisor you would work with or would you sort of rotate in a couple of labs, talk with people, and then you will settle down on an advisor? Yep, so to kind of provide a little more context on uh, like how I got in. So when I was in doing my undergrad, I was actually uh, quite concerned I wouldn't get into any good PhD programs. Uh, so I 
was a dual math and uh, computer eeks, uh, electrical engineering, computer science student. Um, and I had dabbled enough in both, but I was kind of an expert in neither, um, which, so I applied to some like uh, math research summer programs that often were a good test of whether you'd be accepted into a top mathematics graduate program. And I, I got rejected from everyone, uh, I, I remember. So I was uh, a, a bit of a shock there for me. Um, so I, this is part of the reason I decided to also like work for a year. I felt that my resume would not be strong enough when I, if I'd applied right out of school. Um, so I think working for a year helped me, you know, one, it helped me like get some time to write some more papers and like finish up some more uh, other work. Uh, but two, it also, um, I think gave me time to like try and learn other things. So I applied to all over the place, uh, like uh, basically every school that I, I think I just picked the top I decided that I was going to apply for EECS rather than math. So I, I also applied to a couple of math programs as well, but I just picked the top 15 schools and applied. Um, I was lucky enough to get into Stanford and uh, uh, like my, my family's based in the Bay Area. So I decided to stay nearby. Um, but I didn't want to go to Berkeley because uh, I'd been there already. So Stanford is a natural choice. Um, also, if you've ever been to, I'll... Uh, bash a little bit on the uh, East Coast schools. It's, it's always very dreary. So uh, Stanford is just sunny and warm and much nicer than like a place like MIT, for example. That's really fascinating. Yeah, no, that was a really good point at the end you made. And yeah, so uh, how did you come to sort of picking your advisor? You went on to work with Professor Vichapane. So were you sort of inclined to, did you look him up beforehand and all? Or was it something you sort of talked with quite a few people and whilst you were completing your initial grad school requirements, you sort of settled yep. down on the problems that he was working on was what fascinated you the most? Yep, no, that's a, it's a really good question. Um, and I think, uh, you know, for people who are listening in, like it, doing a PhD is often different in the European and the American systems. So in the American system, you often apply for a program uh, and usually not with the directly for an advisor. Whereas in the European system, I think usually apply for an advisor directly. Um, so in like my case, uh, I got into the Stanford program and uh, the Stanford computer science program has a rotation system. So I rotated in uh, three different groups. Um, uh, one of them was uh, uh, Andrew Ng's group. Another was uh, was doing deep learning research. Mendel Rosenblum, who's doing system software work. Um, and Percy Lang, who's doing uh, machine learning theory. Um, and I actually decided to not join any of them, but ended up kind of joining Vijay's group. Um, it was kind of by happenstance. I was having trouble finding an advisor that I uh, felt was a good fit for me. Um, and I happened to kind of come across some of uh, Vijay's group and his posters through some uh, uh, mutual friends who, uh, uh, of people in his lab. And I found the work was interesting and, uh, you know, hit it off with uh, Vijay and some of his students. And so we, we started working together and uh, that was that. I, I think for me, in my case, I was also lucky enough to be supported by uh, something called the Hertz Fellowship. Uh, so it provided me with funds for my the, the entirety of my PhD. So I wasn't worried about funding, thankfully. So I could uh, uh, just get um, pick kind of an advisor, uh, take my time to pick an advisor. Uh, in, in depending on funding situation, some departments will ask people to find an advisor right away. Others will give time. Uh, so I think we were lucky enough to get time. Uh, so I, I took some... Uh, 
I, I think in general, while picking an advisor, I think one thing that's really important is talking to not only the advisor, but uh, you know, his or her students. Um, and I think a good rule of thumb I can tell people is that uh, look at the outcome of the average student. Like we all want to think we'll be extraordinary, but I think that if you look at how the like, you know, the average outcome is for a group, that'll give you a really good idea of where you might end up. Um, and, and again, it's, we all like to think that we will come out on top or like do really well, especially if you're trying to be a scientist. Uh, but, you know, it, it's, uh, it's all, it's, that may or may not happen depending on the situation and the scenario. So understanding what the average case is, I think is a great way to understand what could happen. That's a really prescient insight. And that was quite a turnaround from getting rejected for all the maths fellowship programs that you applied to post your undergrad to getting a Hertz fellowship, which is like one of the most selective grad school fellowships. That was really quite a turnaround. And sort of a lesson for all of us not to be sort of dissuaded by rejections. And PhDs are sort of like grad school, the entire grad school experience is built around um, or even academia is built around rejections. There is always the anonymous reviewer too rejecting your papers. And then there are rejections, tons of rejections you can face from fellowship grants and other committees and all. But it's really important to sort of foray on rather than just sort of getting dissuaded by that. No, absolutely. And uh, to also provide some context, my first year in the PhD, I had four different papers get rejected. Uh, like one after the other. So it's uh, quite common uh, to have a series of rejections. Um, I think that there's two things to kind of do with that. Like one is that, um, you know, if you can, if your personal and financial situation allows it, continuing to keep trying can be a powerful tool. Like if you're interested and you're in a good environment, oftentimes things will work out given enough time. Um, but the other thing is also to consider changing strategies. So in my PhD, I found that the type of work I was doing, machine learning conferences were not receptive to it. Uh, so they just, uh, I had multiple rejections from the ML conferences and uh, it felt, I felt like the reviewers in the community there didn't appreciate the work. Uh, whereas I tried uh, submitting to a chemistry journal and you know, much to my surprise, it was dramatically easier. Uh, the, um, you know, Vijay was uh, at the time like a very well-renowned chemist and uh, he like having, you know, Stanford, a famous Stanford chemistry professor submitting all of a sudden the journal process was quite easy to navigate. Uh, whereas uh, for the ML reviewers, like in one way, it's very fair in that you have like a dual anonymization. So they don't know who's writing. Uh, but in another way, this can actually be challenging because the people who are reviewing the work may not actually be very qualified to. Uh, like you can't suggest reviewers, you can't. Um, so there's there's perhaps more fairness, but there's also um, still hidden biases or like in some cases, lack of understanding. So like actually now machine learning conferences are much more friendly to machine learning work on molecules. Uh, I think it's because there has been like a, a, a NeurIPS workshop uh, established several years ago uh, for machine learning on molecules, and there's more papers now. But I think the first times we submitted, it was kind of flat, uh, nearly flat out rejected uh, in a number of cases. Yeah, so there's a lot of strategy, basically. 
absolutely absolutely that's so very true and it also sort of talks about uh, minor issues associated with journal publishing and all and a lot of the legacy journals and all they sort of in the last decade they did really come to terms there was a lot of revolution in publishing of sorts uh, the life sciences in particular took to preprints although theoretical sciences always had the archive preprint server we had the rise of the bio archive chem archive and the med archive coming in and some all uh, big short legacy journals like jni and all transition to fully digital only issues and all so there was a lot we have had a couple of journal editors who have been there on random works and they have shared their insights so that was uh, really fascinating and you talked about sort of working uh, at the intersection of uh, sort of deep learning and molecules and all and early on it wasn't a very receptive line of work for especially the computer scientists out there and the avenues that were out there to publish and the conferences and all and today sort of life has again come a full circle for that field sort of like uh, recently we had a couple of months back if i'm not wrong we had google's alpha fold 2 doing some pretty remarkable things with protein structure discoveries and all and, which is a very fundamental problem and all and sort of you also worked on similar lines so how was it sort of choosing a problem for your phd was it something it came out of your myriad discussions you had with your advisors and fellow grad students and all or was it something you chanced upon uh, on a paper you were reading and you thought this is a good area to foray into and how was it all like that's a great question um so i think it's a combination of two things uh, one was the deep learning you know th- there's a lot of excitement about deep learning in the air so trying to do something that used deep learning for molecules or drug discoveries seemed kind of natural. Um, VJ's group had uh, for several years actually worked on various methods for doing uh, informatics or uh, basic machine learning with molecules. So there is a, um, a paper, uh, one of my like, uh, you know, senior students uh, who graduated before uh, me in VJ's group, he'd been working on, uh, I think like kernel methods uh, to make, uh, to work with molecules or like other Uh, property prediction methods. Um, also, uh, so uh, there was kind of a natural line of research that was looking into applying informatics and machine learning to molecules. And I think that added to the excitement around deep learning, uh, suggested a natural direction. The hard part, I think, was um, going from the natural direction to something that was concrete results. Um, it, getting the first deep learning system working was actually quite challenging. I took about, uh, I, I was lucky enough to intern at Google during this time. So we were doing the work uh, uh, as a uh, research project uh, with uh, Google. And this took about seven, eight months of effort, I think. Uh, and for a large part of that time, it didn't work well at all. Uh, but, you know, when we finally got the system working, I think, I think with deep learning, often you, there's like a, enough tricks that you have to learn to be able to apply build these systems in practice. Uh, but then from there onwards, I think it, it felt like I'd learned the core essential skill. And uh, for different projects, there was um, there's still work, of course, but I, I felt like one of those core insights had fallen into place. Uh, and the rest of the PhD was just hard work uh, to make it follow. Absolutely. That was a really 
फाइनेंसाइट इंडस्ट्रियलोर्ट्रियलोर्ट्रियलोर्ट्रियलोर्ट्रियलोर्ट्रियलोर्ट्रियलोर्ट्रियलोर्ट्रियलोर्ट्रियलोर्ट्रिय
I still see myself as a scientist and I think the that part has not changed but I I think for me being a professor and being a scientist felt like they didn't necessarily have to be the same thing uh like you could be a scientist without being a professor and vice versa um so a combination of factors so I think I I decided to give doing a startup a try I felt you know doing uh it right out of school uh at the time I wasn't married I didn't have any like uh like too many other kind of uh life uh constraints so it felt like a good time to give give the startup a whirl that was a really sort of great overview for your eventual decision to come back to the sort of space and you also touched upon some issues that plague academia for long and it's for far too long we have sort of ignored them and it's really high time sort of grad students and post also get a livable wage rather than a minimum wage of sorts and more often it's also important to sort of not exactly villainize certain career options and all there is a trend of sort of portraying people going to the dark side or something of that sort and all and then there is the ubiquitous sort of you need to adhere to certain constraints to have a successful academic life and all we need to sort of because it sort of perpetuates a again a position of privilege and all and as we sort of saw in the last year and also not everyone has the wherewithal to sort of dedicate five years working at absolutely low wages and then sort of again venturing off into a postdoc and all again working at the bare minimum it's really high time a lot of changes need to happen and those are some really recent insights you shared i think it's um it, it's i think there's a lot of strengths to the current system like uh you know to give the other side i felt the phd was like um some of my most productive uh and the kind of like uh interesting time i spent there like uh in retrospect i think i had um doing a startup was a lot rougher than i thought it would be and the phd actually was like much despite the lower pay was i would say a more productive and useful use of time but yeah i think you're right like the it's a minimum wage uh you're not the i think that there are difficulties there it's a little bit like a guild you know like a medieval guild you need to get the uh accreditation from the guild in order to uh you know formally be a scientist there are a few exceptions these days there are a few scientists who have established themselves without that phd but it's still i think very rare um like i don't think you need a phd honestly to do good research but it can be useful as a marker of like i think it's a skill that takes about 3 to 5 years to learn how to do good research so i think it's a good shorthand uh but of course you can pick up these skills other ways and uh it there might it might be time to consider changes to the system that make it easier part of the work that we do with deepcamp uh is that we enable uh open source research so we have students who are doing research that um you know all sorts of stages in their careers so high school students phd students uh from all over the world so maybe this is like a you know an embryonic form of like a more decentralized research organization um but very early days and we have not uh, uh figured figured all that out by any means that's so really true and after came to open source so open source also sort of uh, 
provide a significant disruption to the patent-based ecosystem of sorts and all. So, do you sort of hold the opinion, considering you're so active in open source and all, sort of patents and all really sort of stifle innovation of sorts, or are they in any means necessary? One can understand the need for sort of military applications or something of that sort. But other than that need, do patents really do any good or sort of pouring into an open source world is a more equitable and a better option, a far better option in the longer run? So I think it's it's a really tough question. Um, I've uh, I think patents for software often don't work well. Um, I think they often you end up patenting ideas that are fairly obvious in many cases. So the patents, especially if they're enforced, can be dangerous rather than helpful. Um, the I, I but I think at the same time, like one thing I'll say is that. Open source often runs on volunteer time. It's not sustainable. Like the reason that, you know, DeepCam or many of these other open source projects really work is because of someone's personal passion. Um, like I know in my case, I've been spending uh, money out of pocket to maintain DeepCam servers for years. And it's because I have the financial, it's not that much money, but it's still some money. Um, so with patents, I think the the success of patents is that they have allowed a way for business to make use of inventions. Um, it, it, they're not always productive, these safeguards, but I think they do serve a valuable purpose in uh, trying to incentivize a company to invest resources for the long term in kind of gaining knowledge. Uh, without like, I, I think there are many cases where open source can be make business sense. I think this is something that, uh, so my new kind of startup, uh, Deep Forest Sciences, we make use of a lot of like open source tools, including DeepCamp. Uh, but it's, I, I think it's a complicated question. I don't think there's like one clear answer at all. Uh, I will say that open source needs kind of more funding from like, uh, you know, governmental and uh, donor institutes in order to be sustainable. Uh, the challenge is that, yeah, so I think another another axis on this is that open, uh, open source doesn't really work for hardware or it doesn't really work for discoveries outside software. Um, so if you are trying, if you're inventing a new molecule or a new material, like I think a patent really is the way to go if you want to protect or kind of uh, gain investment in that discovery. Uh, so there, there, yeah, it's a complicated question. I think there's like multiple axes uh, on that for sure. That's so very true. And you sort of negotiated that uh, very well and all. And so you along the way, you also made some really great points about how exactly sort of it's needed a more backing from the universities and other grant agencies and all of sorts and all and along the way uh, sort of one is also reminded of uh, the subject of last year's chemistry nobel prize crispr is also embroiled in a patent battle at least in the united states between the mit harvard at one side and the broad institute and uc berkeley where the original findings were and all and it sort of brings back to the notion but again it also talks about sort of like uh, crispr is a great example of how a quest for something 
niche that no one really envisaged when Francisco Mujica back in Alicante at Spain went on to study the microbes that were surviving in salt pans. He wasn't really, he did not really envisage that sort of study will sort of kickstart such a thing and all. And it also brings back to the question of sort of funding blue sky research and funding basic science research. And many are there who sort of opine that in a sense, the industrial companies of today's don't really, even the research companies don't really mirror the bell labs of the days of yours. So especially in the other computer sciences, yes, you have some, the big tech companies running their fantastic research groups and all, but especially in physical and life sciences and all, you don't really have industry funding research, the blue sky research of sorts that sort of really catalyzed things. We can talk about dew point. The dew point of today doesn't really mirror the dew point that Wallace Carothers, who discovered new nylon over there, sort of ran. Or even Merck, for example, especially as we are talking about vaccine research and some of the greatest vaccines were built in Merck by Morris Hillman. And basically, in today's times, sort of most of the times, pharma companies and all, they don't really sort of invest in drugs and all that don't really sort of pay back. There's been a lot of questions about how there are practically no pediatric cancer drugs and they're all off-label use. The adult cancer drugs that are approved for treatment, they're used off-label by doctors because pharma companies don't find it worthwhile to conduct clinical trials of babies and all. And due to which there is a paucity of drugs for women's minorities and other underrepresented groups and all. So so how do you see this ecosystem of sort of spanning out? Do you see some changes happening? And as you talked about more than open source and everything else, these sort of technologies and research sort of has to have a governmental backing and worldwide there has been a shift to sort of funding something more applied and all. But unless and until we sort of fund these fundamental quests, the usefulness of useless knowledge a motto that the institute for advanced studies is built on einstein never did relativity because they will be used in gps systems which will enable us to hail a cab or book a hotel room but the reason he did was just for curiosity so funding research for curiosity's sake how do you see it spanning out with days by days government sort of growing skeptical and wanting to fund more applied things industry not really funding it at a scale they funded back in the days and all so how do you see it spanning out so good question um so i think this really depends on the country of course but i think for the us um I actually think that, so the US is pretty good, I think, at funding basic science and it's pretty good at funding commercialization, but it's not so good at the in-between stage, I think. Um, so if, uh, like, for example, I, um, sorry, do you need to? Uh, oh. That's completely fine, yeah. Okay, um, so, I think that for basic science, like the way I see it is there's actually a lot of basic science research being done in American institutions that's pretty solid. Um, like what I think is missing is this like uh, translational applied research that is at the, some technologies are eminently ready to be moved into the market. Uh, and for them, like there's all this money around startups. But there's this gap where there's technology that could be useful for people in five to 10 years, 
but is not uh, would require say a lot of know-how i think that somewhere actually china is like potentially ahead of the us uh and uh they've invested a lot of money in manufacturing and growing out that manufacturing base which um gives i think researchers there are like often a powerful advantage so for me i think the the place i i see the most potential is in crossing that gap between like very basic theoretical knowledge to the practical real world. Um, because I think there's a lot of things that even today that where the basic theory has been worked out, but um, crossing the chasm to uh, reaching, uh, you know, actual people is uh, very hard. Uh, so for a few things in that vein, uh, for example, for years, people have been doing basic research on carbon nanotubes. Uh, and using them in uh, various applications, including uh, processors. So it's only very recently that after a lot of research, it's beginning to approach a point where you could consider using this in commercial chips. But it's it's a hard, it's been like a decade long journey or more. And I think it, it will be another five or 10 years before you could use this in, um, in practical settings. Uh, and I think part of the challenges I know for researchers in the US uh, TSMC, uh, like kind of one of the core foundries that manufactures modern chips is in Taiwan. So there's no really good local source to actually even test out these ideas. Um, so for me, I think uh, perhaps where I might defer just a little bit is that I think there's a lot of basic science research. There's a lot of like, if you like open up like, you know, physical review letters or nature or something, there's a lot of like foundational ideas, but the hard part is often figuring out which of these ideas I think have heft to them. And I think that's where you need to do this like applied translational research to take out the ideas that um, have real value. Um, like, yeah, I think in, you brought up the case of Einstein. In, in his case, I think he essentially solved an open problem, multiple open problems simultaneously uh, in physics. So it was there, it was like kind of clear from day one that he'd done great work but i think like uh, the other example you brought up before crispr yeah, i think that, that's interesting because like no one had any idea that it was more than a curiosity um so i think that was you know arguably a uh, like the giant leap that uh all the patent battles around was around that applied translational step of proving that there's a important practical use case for the technology so i think that's where i think there's like these fundamental challenges where I think we still need blue sky, totally out there research, but um, oftentimes with the very blue sky stuff, the hard part is that uh, how do you know if it's valuable or, or if it's just, there's for every, I think like one idea goal, there's nine more who's like uh, either the time has not come yet or they're not worth very much. And it's very hard to differentiate between the two of these. Like, how do you know if it's a great idea or just one that, uh, or a bad idea, uh, and only time can tell, and that's very hard to prove out. Sorry, that was a bit of a long answer, but I, uh, hopefully I hit some of the points you're asking. No, that's a really terrific elucidation of the dilemma that you outlined. And you talked about the US being a behemoth for funding basic science research, and one is reminded of a fantastic technology that's been in the news in the last couple of months or so, especially as the pandemic sort of came to an ease and that is the mRNA vaccines and many sort of feel that 
it was developed in a time span of one year. Yes, the vaccines were developed in a time span of one year, but the National Institute of Health has been funding mRNA research for the last 40 years and four decades back, no one really put out a grant application stating there will be a pandemic of sorts. So although it will be a goldmine for the conspiracy theorists to point out, who sort of love to point out that the pandemic was created a love of sorts, but that's not really the case. But as you talked about, sort of that linking up that applied translational skill set, that's really important. And that was a really terrific elucidation of the dilemma. And it's really important to sort of, as you talked about, again, it sort of becomes difficult to distinguish the really great stuff from something that may not sort of pay off in the end and all. But those were some really wonderful points. And yeah, so sort of coming back to this. And so you have been sort of like post your PhD doing some really cool work of sorts and all. So how do you sort of like uh, see yourself sort of uh, planning out in the next decade of sorts and all? You have been writing some really terrific blog posts. You started a newsletter sort of elucidating the intricacies of the semiconductor industry and all. So we'll dive into it. But overall, how do you envisage yourself sort of do it? Do you sort of plan to sort of keep building and scaling deep chem and all? And do you plan to sort of do something else of sorts? Or how do you see, sort of see yourself in the next decade or so? Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I think so. I recently started up a new company uh, I mentioned briefly earlier, uh, Deep Forest Sciences. So we use, uh, we basically build uh, AI tools for deep technology applications. Uh, a lot of the tooling uses deep chem and kind of the infrastructure that has been developed in the open source. Uh, so I think over the next several years, I see myself continuing to work on Deep Forest, um, making, you know, putting a good part of uh, portion of the funds and research back into the open source through R&D, writing papers, creating uh, kind of more robust open code. Uh, we have some cool projects that I can't talk about yet, but hopefully over the next, you know, several months or year will uh, begin to come out. Um, so uh, the hope there is, I think, to bring these tools that we've built out to more people and make it easier to discover things uh, in various deep technology applications, you know, biotech, pharma for sure, but I think there's also a lot of applications in energy, agriculture, and semiconductors among other fields that uh, have seen actually less use of um, AI techniques uh, comparatively. Um, so that's where, where I see myself uh, continuing to work on over the next several years. Uh, the new center you mentioned is like one of our you know, products at Deep Forest. So we put out, uh, so we have like free episodes on Fridays, sorry, free issues on Fridays. And we also do a subscriber issues for uh, kind of professionals, people who work in the field. Um, so I think part of what I've learned about working in deep technology applications is you need to have a very strong domain knowledge. You can't just come in with only understanding the computer science or the machine learning or what have you. So you need to really understand the foundational you know, uh, science of a field. So part of what the newsletter does is we try to go deep into the foundations of different fields. Uh, we've been covering semiconductors for the last few months. Uh, I think that once we do a pass-through, we'll continue on. I think eventually uh, we'll do things like, uh, you know, high-speed rail, uh, fusion, um, quantum computers, uh, you know, manufacturing. Textiles is actually a fascinating area. Um, so we will continue to kind of keep writing about these different uh, deep technology applications. 
uh, and fields and the basic science of them. That's really fascinating. And in your newsletter, you have a lot of really great insights about the semiconductor industry. Along the way, you also talk, you talked about TSMC a bit earlier, Bemboth uh, and all. So do you sort of see the manufacturing sort of like semi semiconductor manufacture as a really intricate process, especially sort of scaling up to chip and transistors and all, as one can also run on all. And uh, as you talked about, there aren't really any home companies of sorts outside of China and Taiwan of sorts, so the Western European nations or America of sorts, or even other countries, they are sort of dependent on these a couple of handful of countries out there in East Asia, especially and all. So do you see some sort of revolution taking place of sorts, some sort of like um, the manufacturing coming back? Of course, it won't develop overnight and all. And along the way, it's also a very great need for a governmental impetus because such things can't really happen overnight. Such capital intensive things that also require a lot of other regulatory approvals and all. It requires immense backing from the governments and all. Do you see the governments of the days up for the challenges and all as as geopolitical tensions arise and all? And how do you see it all happening in case there is some increase in tensions? Can there be a day when the chips and transistors don't really sort of sail to the coast and there is a immense chip shortage that sort of brings the world to its knees to a certain pause and all? And how do you see it all planning? That's a great question. Um, so I think the I think part of what we've seen with COVID uh, has really been like the breakdown of like the, uh, you, know, you could say like uh, there's a fancy term like the Pax Americana, like since World War II, I think uh, uh, there was Russia and kind of the uh, kind of uh, Soviet bloc. Um, and in the nineties after the fall of uh, Russia, it was for the last like nearly 30 years, it's been kind of American hegemony. Uh, this in many ways has set kind of a standard where you can, in a globalized world, you were able to manufacture anything anywhere. So a lot of manufacturing moved to China, like call centers uh, moved to India, IT off, uh, shops to India, uh, and to all sorts of places over the world. I think that what we will begin to see now is that uh, with China's increasing nationalism and aggression, uh, with kind of the... Uh, kind of uh, recent domination of Hong Kong, the conflict with India uh, in the Himalayas, uh, the threats against Taiwan. I think that China is attempting to assert itself on the world stage. Um, there's also, you know, I think a country asserting itself is one thing, but there's also all the horrors that are happening in Xinjiang, the camps uh, where they're detaining the Uyghur people. Um, so there's a, I think there's a lot there to be worried about. Um, and the, I think the reality is that we'll begin to see a fracture in the global supply chain. I think that the US and China will increasingly create ecosystems around themselves of allies. And these two ecosystems, I think, will be start to be drawn apart. Um, this does mean I think a lot of manufacturing will have to move elsewhere. I think in the short term, it won't. I think a good chunk will come to the US, but I think a lot will go to places like Thailand or maybe India, or maybe like uh, maybe even Japan. Uh, I think robotic manufacturing, I definitely see coming back to the US. I think that uh, robotic manufacturing has real potential and it's beginning to take off. Um, 
semiconductors, I think, are an immense area. Like most uh, most of the world's chips are kind of made in TSMC. Uh, well, not most, but maybe I haven't done a good analysis of the fraction, but I think like it's almost a 50% market share. Uh, and talking to you from my MacBook, uh, that was probably a TSMC chip right there. Um, so the challenge there is that the, the reunification of Taiwan with mainland China has been a long time standing goal of the communist government. They, there is continued tension in the South China seas. Like uh, it's unclear what the outcomes will be there, but I think that um, for the United States, also for India, for other countries, it's I think unwise to necessarily rely on one source. So I think we'll begin to see, you know, these two camps, but I think for large enough countries, I think there will be increasing uh, focus on kind of manufacturing within the country. I think in India, there's the Make in India scheme that has been running for some time. I, I don't know how successful that has been or not been, but I think that um, that's a trend that we'll begin to see where uh, there's a more fractured uh, global supply chain. But my, my guess right now would be the rough rise of two camps, like the American slash with Europe and India and some like other powers. And I think Russia, China, various Belt and Road countries, maybe parts of Africa uh, on the other side. But we'll have to see. I think it's, it's far too early to kind of tell what comes out of anything. That was absolutely fantastic overview. And as you talked about, the world is sort of going to be a more inward-looking one rather than the globalization days of year that we saw in the last couple of decades and all. And especially in the Trumpian era, one could sort of see the ends of it. And as countries turn even more inwards-looking and tariffs were imposed on sort of supposedly friendly countries and all. And it sort of really showcased the fragility of the whole globalized world and all where you can have an aberration like a president trump coming in and sort of disrupting the entire global order and, all. and that was something really fascinating and as you talked about there can be sort of blockades and all due to the current existing geopolitical tensions and all and in your post also you sort of reflect on these critical issues and there is a trend of sort of to portray science as a very apolitical endeavor and all but in reality it doesn't whether it's funding or any other things of sorts and all it's sort of and along the way there are many issues also like gender disparity, bias, and discrimination against underrepresented groups that have played science and academia for long. And absolutely, science uh, as a whole, physics or maths can't be sort of racist or something of that's biased. But the people who do are humans after all, and our very own human biases do creep into that. And especially as we are sort of talking about this, there has been an increasing rise in racial tensions and sort of racial attacks on Asian Americans and in, uh, in the United States and all. So were you on the receiving end at any point of time due to being an ethnic, belonging to an ethnic immigrant family of sorts, or was some other mentee of yours or was someone you knew at the receiving end? And did you have to confront it at any time on your behalf or on someone else's behalf? It's a good question. I think, um... I think after Trump's election, there were definitely a lot more tensions and kind of evil forces really that were pushed out. I 
We'll say that like, I don't think I've really dealt with uh, that much on my end personally. I think there's like a couple unpleasant people on train, but that's like the most. But I think that is would be true in any society. Uh, had my family stayed in India, for example. Um, I think that people I know, yeah, I think there's definitely been like, I, I think there have been some, uh, you know, violent attacks in Chinatown, kind of driven by a kind of white supremacist uh, action, uh, likely. It's hard to tell. I think these are, I, I think that the challenge that the US, you know, faces really is that it's a large multi-ethnic democracy. And there's so many people that come from so many different backgrounds that all have to work together. So there's, I, I think there are some fundamental challenges there. Um, you know, I think India really faces similar challenges in a different way. Like different states have, you know, very different goals sometimes. Like there's a lot of like, you know, communities and groups within India, of course. Uh, and I think India's found its own answers that seem to be working at least in part with reservations. Uh, like in the US that, I think the US we need to renegotiate what the right structure is. And that's a messy process that will take years and decades to work out. Um, but yeah, I, I think I'm not very qualified to say like what the best answers are there. So I think I follow along with interest, but it's outside uh, kind of the technology I know more about. That's so very true. And as you talked about sort of having um, people who encourage sort of racist attacks, like calling the COVID-19 virus a China virus and all, these do really exacerbate racial tensions of sorts and all. And as you talk different countries, India has its own problem with caste as a whole and all. And then there are other issues and all. And it's really important to be aware of our own sort of society, the biases and all, because at the end of the day, it's really myopic to assume it, uh, all our enterprises or NDVs can be thoroughly apolitical of sorts. Yeah, no, I, I think you said it uh, exactly. It's a, I think it's extraordinarily complicated. Um, I don't think that there's like one right answer. Like, I, I, I do think it's true that, like, I think science has gotten more global and accessible over the last 20, 30 years with the rise of the internet. I think that uh, many more people from across the world are contributing. But I think even then, it's often people who are well off in their parts of the world who contribute. Um, so there are many students from India, for example, who work uh, on DeepKin, but they're often from families that are well enough to be able to afford you know, a decent computer or good internet connection. Uh, it's not like we don't reach, say, like the families where you're actually in need. So that I think is a continuing challenge. It's a really, really hard one. I think that uh, there's not, I, I think there's no like easy answer. Like I know in science, there's been major struggles there to kind of uh, make it a more welcoming institution that you often run into these very challenging questions like, um, for example, like, you know, the PhD we talked about earlier with the five-year program, um, is that strictly necessary? Maybe, maybe not, but it's the way things have been done for a very long time. Uh, and there's inertia, like, uh, I think this PhD system goes back at least in, you can trace the European academic lineages to the 1300s. 
So like your advisor's advisor's advisor goes all the way back. So something that's been around for like, like the English monarchy uh, to have another relevant uh, reference. Uh, yeah, uh, so I, I don't know. I think this is going to be a very hard question that all of us as uh, members of society or scientists have to think about and uh, follow a new path. But yeah, I, I think that's going to be like, for example, we're having this conversation in English, um, like, which, you know, is of course, like, in one way you could say that like in the use of English in kind of the in India and the Indian diaspora is like what enables uh, us from say different states to be able to talk easily. But it does also mean that there are, it's only a small fraction of Indians who can easily participate in say the scientific process. Whereas in China, I think there's been much more of a focus on education within Chinese itself, which I think the, there's strengths and weaknesses there. I think it's less tied into the rest of the global ecosystem. Uh, I think this is partly by design from the government, uh, the communist government, uh, but it does arguably make it more accessible to, uh, for people within China. Although there, are, I think there are divides within China as well, of course, between kind of uh, rural and urban areas and things like that. So uh, anyways, it's, it's a deep hard problem. I have no answers, so I'll just stop right there. Absolutely. And you talked about the PhD system being in a drastic need of overhaul, sort of like the British monarchy. And one is reminded of a very great British-American physicist who left the world past year, Freeman Dyson, who was a very big critic of the America, the PhD system as a whole, and who famously never earned a PhD. And as you talked about sort of doing science in one's own languages, it's really important to remember Freeman Dyson really had a chance to win the quantum electrodynamics Nobel, if not for him also pointing out and attributing the paper to a, a very phenomenal paper that was published in the Japanese Journal of Physics by Shinitro Tominaga, who went on to share the prize with Richard Feynman and Julian Schwinger for the revolution of quantum electrodynamics. And if not for Freeman Dyson, the English-speaking scientific diaspora will have never got a hang of. There was a Japanese physicist in the ravages of Tokyo post the bombing who was also doing some very revolutionary stuff. And one is sort of reminded of that. Yep, yep. No, I think this is, I, I think this is going, yeah, I think it's it's like when you we were earlier talking about people who had been the exceptions to the PHUO, I think, of course, Freeman Dyson was like one of the most prominent examples of this. Um, but I think, you know, even now, like, I think if you want to be a scientist, I'd say it's so worth doing a PhD in order to kind of gain entry into the system it's it's by far the easiest way to kind of build those credentials um but yeah is it i i think it's a really hard question like uh if you work at a kind of a company there's not you'll work on say like company specific research but it's hard to get access to the broad thinking or like the neutral environment you have at a phd where you're encouraged to think about other broader ideas um like to, to kind of raise like another point there, I think like in many cases, I think it's like when you start a scientist often, like I think that for many young scientists, they dream of say being an Einstein or a, you know, a Marie Curie or someone who's like 
emulator, uh, like a revolutionary thinker. But I think oftentimes, like there's an overemphasis on um, personal genius and an underemphasis on environment. Like I think it's more often being in the right environment where there's enough smart people around that leads to interesting advances rather than the opposite. Um, like I, I think that, uh, um, yeah, like Ramanujan, for example, is a famous uh, counterexample of very few people who was able to kind of uh, do astounding mathematics uh, almost in an environment of isolation. But I think uh, for most of us, I think it's often like finding the right environment, the right set of collaborators, the right network that makes or breaks things. And that's often a setup of like, so if you replace a PhD, then I think the challenge there is like, what is the network? What is the gathering of funding? And I don't think there's an answer to that. Um, I, I think one, one intermediate step might be like potentially reforming the PhD a bit. Uh, I know there's a lot of, uh, in a lot of places, like students are treated very badly. Uh, it's kind of an open secret if you pick the wrong department or the wrong advisor, you could have a pretty terrible experience. So having better protections like a student union uh, or PhD students to uh, negotiate higher wages and more protection, I think has been picking up some steam. So I think there's like, that. yeah, this is, this is much like any other part of politics, I think. Like, I, I think that my guess is that reform that starts from what exists today and step-by-step -step improves it uh, could be the way to go. But um, yeah, my guess is if you have the spirit and strength of a Freeman Dyson, you can very well kind of forge your own path today. But I think for most of us, we don't have that kind of the mental fortitude or power to kind of carve out our own path in isolation. That's so very true. And one is also reminded of another distinguished physicist who never owned a PhD. That was Satyendranath Bose, S.N. Bose, or the Bose-Einstein theory fame, the Bose-Einstein condensate and all, who was also a really great polygon and a revolutionary physicist who never had a PhD to his name. And as you talked about, it's really important to sort of get a a sort of a reform but these reforms sort of whether it is in the PSE system or in the British monarchy it doesn't really come easily and that was really fascinating and I love that we also made some really great points about research and academia science being a very collaborative individual rather than a path that's only lined by lone geniuses and all it's really important it's these sort of collaborations it's sort of these coffee chats you have post a seminar or colloquiums that are yeah. behind many of these ideas rather than just some lone genius sitting in his room all day and conjuring up ideas that's not yeah. how really it happens yeah no i think that you're absolutely right like it's the often these sidebar conversations that you have like um, I think I did more research at the coffee shop next to uh, kind of the Stanford office building where I worked rather than kind of in the room or like at my computer. Um, and I think this is a common experience, as you said, for like many, many scientists. Like I think in this uh, COVID era, it's a little different. So I think it's like everything has moved a bit online. But I think there's, uh, I, I think there definitely is still like a magic to having kind of people in one place where you can run into uh, Everything is planned now. You have to schedule it. You have to find the time on the calendar. Uh, whereas I think having uh, serendipitous conversations, I think, uh, and, and I think there's still no real replacement for that. 
that's so very true although in some ways it has been a great equalizer it allows us to have these conversations by being on the opposite ends of the world and it also sort of like there are a lot of researchers from especially the supposed third world countries or countries like india iran and all who for them not the challenge was not only getting a paper in a top conference it was also getting a visa accepted and many had to skip hurdles a lot of hoops and all of some i uh, have some have had some a chance yeah. to be friends with some really great iranian scientists and they talk about how even getting a visa from iran involves you to a us visa from iran involves you to go to two separate countries get your yeah. verifications and all done and it also brings back to the all about science being a very inequitable place and unless or until you have the wherewithal to fly out to two different countries navigate the complex procedures and also knowing the fact that success isn't always guaranteed it's a really tough proposition although in the covid-19 pandemic and especially for other people people with special needs and all people with accessibility issues it was a sort of a really great equalizer of sorts and along the way you also made about having those coffee shop conversations and you worked in the intersection of deep learning and biology and all and a really phenomenal sort of stuff that happens in structural biology and the whole of the molecular biology revolution was sort of seeded by in Francis Crick at the laboratory of molecular biology at Cambridge along the way where another great indian nobel laureate venki ramakrishnan also conducted some and still conducts some fantastic research on ribosomes and in his terrific autobiography gene machine which is sort of like i love calling it the double helix without watson's baggage so in gene machine he talks about how aaron clug a great director of the lmb who also went on to win nobel prize the lmb by the way has 50% of the britain's nobel prizes came out of lmb and almost all of the bio and chemistry ones and he talked about how the lmb had this culture of mandatory coffee shop conversations every evening at 5 people used to gather around for tea and english tea british tea is a very elaborate arrangement and in one such conversation a janitor once asked aaron clug about what is a cell and aaron clug went on to elucidate on the cell on what exactly is a cell for the next 75 minutes and everyone was sort of fascinated and the serendipitous explanation also seeded the research of someone else who would go on to win the nobel prize 3 decades later and these are the things that really stand out stories in science and academia apart from like people think that we get brilliant insights all the time but it's all it's all seeded as we have had in this terrific conversation with you by those serendipitous moments all the way facing rejections and rejections by the dozens but it is these serendipitous moments in which we have some fascinating insights that really help catalyze our research of sorts Yep. No, I think you're you're absolutely right. It's uh, uh, yeah. I, I think there there is that magic to kind of like the dynamism of like getting the right group of people, be it online or uh, like uh, in kind of uh, uh, the real world. So I think for like the Deep Chem project, I've been uh, we've been running these weekly office hours where we have students from all over the world that come in. There's this Google Hangouts call, uh, and you can anyone can drop in at any time and come in or leave. Just been interesting experience like i think there's i think we'll begin to see the emergence of like digital spaces that 
mirrors some of the dynamism of like the physical real world. But I think there's some replacement. If you have like good tea and biscuits and cake, I, I, I think that still wins over anything you'll find on the internet. Uh, I, we, I, I remember at Google, I, I talked to an engineer there. They said back when Google was a small company, they used to have a daily tea cart. Uh, it would like bring tea around to everyone. It was on back and it was only in a building or two. Um, and that was where a lot of really fundamental insights to the company happened was, you know, hanging out at the tea cart and getting, uh, taking a break. Uh, so yeah, yeah, I think there's something uh, magical about that environment that is, well, may, maybe virtual reality, maybe maybe there's other technological uh, things that can cross that gap, uh, but we'll have to see. That's really fun. Um, that makes me sort of ask you about deep learning as a whole. Deep learning has been really, really revolutionary. And you have sort of been there at the right place at the right time, seeing the revolution really kickstart as your PhD kickstarted and all. And it has really come to the fore. It has catalyzed a lot of advances and all. And in, in a lot of different fields, right, from structural biology to advancing sort of chips and GPUs and all, speeding up them and all. So how do you see the whole uh, hype? It's the hype or the reality of deep learning being a very revolutionary tool here to stay. Is it going to catalyze those astounding advances that it has made in the last decade or so in the coming few decades? Or there is some other paradigm shift that's going to happen in the coming few years and decades, although it's very hard to predict those because they happen very unassumingly. But do you see the hype around deep learning is here to stay because it is sort of going to give results? And along the way, as you talked very early on, your entire journey in science was catalyzed by thinking about quantum computing of sorts. And quantum computing is really coming into its own in the last few years or so. So how do you see this whole technology, especially these novel technologies like deep learning and quantum computing coming through in the coming decades or so? It's a good question. Um, I, I, think, I think deep learning is here to stay. I think there's enough useful things that have been built with it that I, I think it's going to continue to be a foundational technology. What I think will happen though is I think it'll become boring. Like what I mean by that is that, you know, like back in the 80s or 90s, people coded everything by hand from like the uh, the matrix library to like the uh, calculus to the gradient descent, sometimes even the programming language, uh, like to do the research. And I think now like step by step, there's more and more tools. So you can build very sophisticated systems, uh, deep learning systems without that much infrastructure. Um, this means that it's been possible for say high school students even to do research and deep learning. Um, but I think that that also means that I think a lot of the really obvious ideas have been tried already. And I think that there's a couple of directions left. One is scale, like OpenAI, if you can wire together like thousands of computers, that's still very hard to do. And it's very hard system software, not very hard AI, I think. Um, so I think there will continue to be large scale research done at the very large, uh, uh, at, at large institutions. I think the other place where there's a potential is I think uh, um, going more into fundamentals. Like if you have a very strong understanding of physics, a very strong understanding of biology, and you know enough deep learning or AI to, you know, you're, you're conversant with the techniques, uh, I think you'll actually stand to find more interesting things than uh, almost the opposite. 
uh, it's, um, I used to say deep learning was a great field for everyone to enter, but I think increasingly, I think now almost 10 years into like deep learning age, I think every, I think students should all learn deep learning, but I don't necessarily know that it's the, uh, unless you're personally deeply passionate about it, the right field to work in anymore. Um, I think this is, uh, uh, yeah, so I, I think there it's like understanding very deeply, for example, like if you want to be a biologist, like biological pathways, like knowing how to do deep learning might be more valuable than uh, trying to do AI and then solve problems through AI, if that makes sense. That was really fascinating. And so I'm inclined to ask you about your fascination with quantum computers. So if you ever get a chance to get a lay your hands on quantum computers, what is the problem that you will give it first and foremost to solve? Is it to break encryption or some drug discovery problem that you would like to really see solved? Or is it something else? That's a really good question. Um, I, I think there's some really fascinating work about interconnections between strongly entangled quantum systems and things like black holes or relativistic systems. Um, I, uh, that line of work has been something that's been really fascinating to me. So I, I think that there's a few people who've done build systems that are like not quantum computers, but say strongly entangled quantum simulations. So there's uh, this one paper that came out a couple of years ago. I'm blanking on who the authors were, but they made something like a super cold Bose-Einstein condensate that was densely entangled in a way that was a, served as a model of a black hole dynamics. Um, so that, that feels to me like a really fascinating fundamental field. Um, I think there's also interest in like, uh, for example, like if you look at some things like, you know, the light harvesting complex, which is like a series of enzymes that uh, allow for photosynthesis. I think there's fascinating quantum behavior that happens even in certain biological systems. So being able to understand that quantum behavior more thoroughly could be a powerful tool. So yeah, I, I think a, a quantum computer would be interesting as if it opens out the ability to understand physical systems more, more deeply. Um, like right now, I think it's still a little bit more of a curiosity than not. I think there's been a few interesting examples, but I think for the most part, better off finding a few GPUs to answer your question. Um, but that could change very likely in the next decade. Absolutely. That's something even Professor John Preskill, a pioneer of quantum information, has also predicted. And he had a very famous write um, with Professor John Dowling, who unfortunately passed away in the last year about the quantum computers being really useful in the coming decades or so. And one really hopes, and there's a lot of discoveries and all that can be catalyzed in materials and drug discovery and a lot of different things with the advent of quantum computers, deep learning and uh, AI as a whole, as we see it has been really revolutionary. And so something that I'm inclined to ask you, we also touched upon um, bias and discrimination and uh, AI systems and all, it's revolutionary technology. So something about uh, the science as a whole uh, can be sort of put to good use or bad use of sorts and all, a lot of different ethical conundrums that can arise. And technologies like CRISPR, AI, DL, or 
quantum computing are far more revolutionary than anything we have seen until now and there are some issues associated with it like any other like a couple of nearly a dec- couple of decades back we had stem cells becoming a partisan political issue and all on which election literally was spot on and all and these technologies uh, modern technologies are far more revolutionary in nature and there are certain issues associated with them whether when one sort of uses ai systems or for facial recognition systems and all and there is a known bias when uh, with respect to underrepresented groups identifying female faces of black and people of color faces and all and so how do you see this shaping up like uh, do you see we sort of uh, people getting a good grasp of the issues there are a lot of other issues that arise around ethical ai systems and the groups that have been working on some big tech companies and all but how do you see it all shaping out to be are we in a position to actually mitigate these biases before they cause greater harm because fortunately or unfortunately they are already being deployed and one of the most costly examples is how the chinese communist government is deploying these systems to sort of target the uyghurs population in xinjiang province uh, that's a, a hard, very hard question i think um you know i i i'm frankly not qualified to to really talk a lot about kind of the deeper understanding and biases so like i think what i can say about maybe is on things like molecules even where for us to understand like you know why a deep learning system makes a prediction it does i think has been very challenging so i think that's been an an ongoing area of research where there's slowly beginning to be more techniques that help you understand what the deep learning model is learning and why um in the broader question of ethics i i think there's some really fundamental you know uh challenges like you know i think there's of course the case with uh, uh, uh timni chabru of course being fired from google uh, ai um there's other you know controversies around facebook ai and kind of their engagement systems um you know i i i think that You know, I, I think this is like a really foundational question. You could argue that Trump and a lot of like, uh, uh, like arose out of like the misinformation environment. Um, I don't. You know, on one hand, you have the Chinese government that uses like a great firewall and like constant censorship to like shut down any discussion of anything. Um, like it's that I think is the like extreme authoritarian. like you know quote unquote solution where you just shut down everything that the central government doesn't want you to talk about um but i think on the other hand if you have a free like a free society the the, the challenge is that uh what happens if someone spreads a lie of course like uh is that and that's optimized by an engagement algorithm because lies people talk about them they refute them and if you're a, a facebook recommender engine maybe you like promote that um my guess is that i think that there will have to be some balance found with reasonable regulation um i think there is also like right now like india and twitter for example have been having a long running dispute over uh like i think certain members of the bjp are making untrue statements and i think they've been somewhat shut down like trump twitter shut down trump or not um So but I think that's say it feels like an unstable equilibrium there like it 
I don't know. Again, this is like hard questions that I don't know the answer to. I think, I think again, it's like it, it, the technology has grown so powerful, it's shaded into questions of politics and democracy and like society. So my guess is eventually regulators within each country create a framework that works within that country. Uh, I think it will be hard to, I, my guess is that that's probably what's going to emerge, but I have, I, I, I will be the first to say I have no idea past whether any, anything I said is like valid. Uh, it's, it's a really, really hard question. Uh, Absolutely. It's a really hard question faced with a lot of dilemmas and all, and also has tremendous implications and all, as we have seen sort of these engagement algorithms that are used by social media companies and all are what sort of exacerbate genocidal tendencies among certain groups and uh, sort of allow extremist groups to sort of come together and all disband together and that's how you have something like an insurrection at the Capitol Hill that took place or in other countries sort of literally government sort of going hard after people, dissidents and all. And it's something that we really need to grapple and something that can be shut off. And there are people with far more power to do so, but it's more important that the decision makers actually listen to them in that regard and all. And along the way, you also made some really great points about how the whole Trumpian era sort of like made us more inward looking and sort of like given rise to a sort of uh, like something we had uh, Professor Neil Shaw from Harvard Medical School coming in and he said like a lot of these existing issues that were already there it's really important to remember that President Trump was not a symptom or not a cause he was rather a symptom of a wider problem that was already there but we had tried to suppress for long and as he said we everything the Trumpian era everything sort of got put into a hot pressure cauldron and 2020 was where it was sort of released and all and what was a phenomenal year and all so do you see with the re-election of president biden one is sort of tends to assume a more sanguine approach will be Aswaj and all but how do you see the shaping out in terms of science quality and overall you also earlier talked about in terms of manufacturing and all and currently also you talked about in regulatory networks with respect to social media and other things and all there will be sort of more every country getting their own approaches and all but do you see some sort of the global network and you also made a really great point early on about the USA being a very multi-ethnic democracy and it's really important to remember the rise of the United States as the preeminent democracy of the West and the world as a whole was partly due to its acceptance of immigrants. And one is reminded of uh, Winston Churchill's advisor, so Ian Jacob, when he was asked, why did the Allies win the war? He very he dryly remarked, because our German scientists were better than theirs. And this is really important to remember. So how do you see with ethnic tensions arising with global tensions all sort of arising more countries turning more inward and all do you see some sort of this globalization some sort of acceptance towards immigrants that has been the strong backbone and the immigrant scientists right from Subramaniam Chandrasekhar to other people they are the ones who have been there at the backbone of the American scientific enterprise so how do you see it all shaping up to be 
say what I hope happens is that uh, the immigration policy in the U.S. is reformed. Um, I think it's a very challenging system. Like, uh, uh, I think for Indians often, there, there's a per country backlog. So I think for like uh, getting a visa into the U.S. as an Indian scientist can be extremely challenging. I, I think in the southern border, there's, of course, uh, been all these atrocities in the Trump era with ICE uh, and uh, otherwise. What I hope that the U.S. and I think Biden's administration seems to be moving this way is reforming immigration to be more equitable, to be more fair, to have clear guidelines. Um, I think that immigration is the biggest advantage the U.S. has over China. Like I think with China, the the draw is money. The market there is immense. But I think for most people who are not ethnically Han Chinese, and even I think most people who are, it's not necessarily a society you'd want to live in. Like I think the repression, the cameras everywhere, the fear of what to say or not say uh, are challenging. Uh, I Whereas in the US, I think that the Trump era has been very rough waters. I, it's been, this year has been much nicer since kind of Biden took charge. Uh, Apparently, everyone's going to have vaccines by May, which I think is a tremendous uh, accomplishment. Um, what, I, what I hope happens is that immigration policy is reformed. I, I think there's a lot of room for improvement there. Um, but I think at the end of the day, we're all small people, and these are enormous forces that are shaping everything. So we all try to do our parts. Uh, but beyond that, I think there's not much more that any of us can do. This has been a really fascinating conversation with you, learning your prescient insights on great many topics and all. This has been really wonderful. And what we sort of like, we talked about a lot of different issues and all, and we had your wonderful insights on a lot of different things, on your incredible journey you have had, straddling startups, academia, industry, and science as a whole. This has been really wonderful. So finally, as a Random Works podcast tradition, which three people would you like to come and divulge their experience in a random walk? That's a really good question. Um... I think on the AI ethics side, I think there have been kind of some leaders in that field. Uh, I, I think, of course, Sunit or some of her uh, colleagues, I think one of them would be a great uh, person to feature because I think those are very, very challenging topics that I think that uh, uh, some, they'd be better suited to address and talk about. Um, on, I think on the geopolitical side, I, I think that, um, you know, one thing that is not widely studied outside Chinese circles is just how much the Chinese Navy and Army have been built up over the last uh, few decades. And I think the the threat this, um, like I, there's some excellent kind of uh, Indian commentators who've been talking about like the situation uh, in the Himalayas. Uh, this is less to do with AI, but say more to do with uh, kind of um, I think the the ongoing say fracturing of the world order. Um, so maybe someone qualified to talk about that. Uh, although I don't have a, a name offhand. Um, I think on the I'm trying to think of an actual scientist or someone to suggest there. Um, I think that 
there in terms of like scientific disciplines i'm very excited about um i think there's a few people who are working uh on i think two really important topics i think climate change i think there's been some people who are doing um working on carbon capture which i think is incredibly important technology likely to have a giant impact uh, another more radical technology i think uh uh, the emergence of, I think, stronger magnets has enabled more experiments in fusion. I think that's another multi-decadal technology, but one that I think is really worth kind of diving into a bit. Um, but uh, yeah, my apologies. I, I didn't give you names. I, I told you topics. Uh, so, but those are really terrific topics that you recommended on. We'll be having some of those. But yeah, thank you. Thank you for indulging us in a very fascinating random book. Okay, wonderful. Thank you for inviting and having me on.